Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. On this episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, I'm excited to welcome Rachel Abramowitz, author of the recently released collection of poems, The Birthday of the Dead. Rachel is a graduate of the Iowa's Writers' Workshop and the University of Oxford. She has been the editor-in-chief of the literary magazine Wave Composition, an intern at the Paris Review, a stock analyst for three months, and has taught English literature at the University of Iowa, the University of Oxford, and most recently at Barnard College in New York. She is the author of The Birthday of the Dead, wonderful book, the winner of the 2021 Maristina Setiasvina Prize from the Conduit Press, the chapbooks of The Puzzle Monster, winner of the 2021 Tomas Solomon Prize, forthcoming from Factory Holloway Press in 2022, and Gutlust, the winner of the 2019 Burnside Review Prize, Burnside Review Press 2020. Her poems have appeared in numerous prestigious journals. Rachel is currently based in Brooklyn. Rachel, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much. This is absolutely marvelous. So happy to be here. Excited to have you here. And I, I just love reading your book. I loved it so much. I read it three times preparing for this. Oh, oh thank you. So The Birthday of the Dead is a surreal, dreamy, at times macabre, and thoroughly mesmerizing read. Anniversary in particular struck a chord with me. Lines like, I married the last spoon in the drawer, the one with a chip in it from when it got caught in the disposer and word and word, the sound that hell. Do you start with a surreal image or myth or story and then try to ground it in something personal, or do you find the surreal in personal experiences? Ooh, wonderful question. I would say both. Um, I think that life can be so surreal if you pay enough attention to it. It's so odd when you step back and think, why are we doing this? How did this system get set up and people just go along with it? And I think at a certain point, you, um, if you step back enough, you are able to see how bizarre it really is. So um, it, there's definitely an interchange, I think, between life and the surreal and an overlap. Um, it's definitely a, a transitive property of, of surrealism that goes back and forth. So um, in that poem, for example, um, I'm sure people have gotten silverware stuck in the disposer before, and it's just such a, a horrific sound, and you panic, and you bring out this tool that was, you know, is meant to be functional and smooth and comfortable. And now it has become monstrous. You know, you can't use it anymore. Now it's sharp and horrible. Right. So um, and and marrying that, so to speak, with the idea of um, of a commitment to a particular kind of life, I think, was the spark for this poem. Um, and then often, though, at, by the end of the poem, I sort of snap out of a little bit of a trance and then think, what did I just write? <laughs> so so sometimes it feels very much like following that surrealist energy throughout the poem and then breaking out of it and seeing just how, was it, was it too strange, too inaccessible, too private? And then revising back either into some kind of familiarity that 
that paradoxically makes things look more surreal or do I need to actually sort of pump up the surrealism somewhere else? So it's, I, I'm so pleased you chose that poem because um, it felt like a little bit of a departure actually um, to take something, to take a moment that was so visceral um, and to really run with the sur surreality of it. Yeah, no, I loved it. I thought that was very representative and unique to your voice. So many of the poems in your collection use white space very effectively. The space between phrases, enjambment, indentation. Is, visualiz is visualizing your poetry part of the initial writing process, or do you discover that during revisions and editing? So what's been so wonderful is my sister is a painter. She is an, a visual artist and is an oil painter, abstract, um, and, and takes up large canvases. So interacting with her actually over the years has encouraged me to use the page more like a canvas in that way. And I think that to answer the question of when that really happens, um, it seems that there might be a glimmer of how to use the page at the beginning of the poem, but maybe halfway through and after during revision, um, I sort of am able to push words around a little bit more like paint. So I'm not so worried necessarily about what they're saying anymore at that moment, um, because I've said all the things that you know need to be written down, and now I have the material, and now I can shuffle things around. So, so maybe the the metaphor is not so much paint, but maybe it's more collage that you can actually move pieces around and see the shapes that they make. And um, I, it's it's actually funny. I was asked a question about form, sort of any kind of formal traditional form, and obviously all all poetry even quote unquote, without form is still has a form, you know, you can't have no form, but um, I, I'm less good at um, using traditional form. And so the experiments with any kind of um, individual form to a poem, I think is, I hope pointing me toward a, a kind of formality that I can start to um, not be so afraid of, right? So to write a villanelle or to write a Sestina or something, which feels difficult to start out with knowing that you're going to write into that form so that to, to say that to start with a form is uh is new to me and a bit scary but that generally is indicating that you should go in that direction <laughs> so so in terms of being on the page um i think this next book i will start to experiment with thinking of form beforehand rather than afterwards well you should give uh the interview i did with a stallings a listen because she is remarkably effective at applying received forms and she starts with a form because she i remember she said it just removes one decision makes things easier whereas for me it's completely the opposite i'm more in your <laughs> in your in your boat where it's just uh i don't i just am not uh, yeah i'm still learning how to do that sestina is on my list of things to conquer exactly it's so interesting to say removing a decision gosh i think framing it that way might help right? To say like, oh, I'm doing myself a favor. <laughs> yes, yes. I remember happens. that distinctly that. from our discussion. Yeah. So your book approaches images of death in different ways. In the prose poem, Your Life in Art, you write, how easy it is to talk to the dead. I have a standing appointment. We lunch in the old ways, pretending to our great estates. The sea rattles beneath the earth, and we turn our eyes to one another. And in Dead Color, you write, I found I had been doing great violence all along the seams of tulips, the dusky grapes who sang to the bats outside, 
the lemon-sized body of a bird who lobbed herself at the window, and both I and the painting began to rot like a cantaloupe, that is to say, from the inside and with temerity. How did this theme of death that flows from the title poem become so central to this collection? Mm. I am fascinated by entropy and just the the ways in which most of our lives are all about combating it, trying to maintain so many things from the physical world and our physical bodies to systems and institutions. And change is very scary, I think, to our culture. And death is very foreign to sort of, you know, our American way of life, I suppose. There, there isn't a lot of room to investigate decay and death and um, absence in that way. And I think there's such, I mean, poets, poets love it, right? Their poems are already, are there either about sex, love, or death, right? So I think I've chosen, I've chosen this one because um, it, it is so outside of our, I mean, I'm saying our, I mean, sure people have much, much better relationships with death. Um, but I, I certainly didn't grow up with a lot of understanding about it. And so it is, it is something that fascinates me and is still mysterious to me. And, and I find every day my instinct is to combat it. And yet in my writing, it is to face it. So there's, there is a very strange tension, I think, between those two um, energies. And this is, a, in, a, in a funny way, it's a safer space to encounter death and, and look at it askance, you know, look at it um, from different perspectives and actually, in the second poem that you quoted, I love those wonderful Dutch still lifes, right? That that look, you know, on first glance, they look so vivid and alive and and um, you know living. And then you look closer, and there's always something rotting, and there's always a bug, you know, and there's always something something you know reminding, of course, memento mori, reminding you of death. And I think that that's very wise, right? I think a lot of certainly the way I was brought up is to avoid any hint of those things and to structure your life so that you only face life. Um, and life is wonderful. I'm not, uh, you know, it's not, I'm not going too far that direction, but there is a, a, a balance to be struck and a lot to learn from entropy and from change um, and those, those kinds of cycles. So um, the, the birthday of the dead, you've got obviously birth and death in those things at the same time. And, and the idea of a death day that we don't have, um, in, in, in our lexicon might be interesting to incorporate and see what, what it does even on a linguistic level, you know, to our daily understanding of something that's, that will obviously, and you know, we'll, all of us will encounter. I think we all grow up saying, not me, but oh yes, you will. <laughs> so that's, that's hard. We touched this a little bit talking about received forms and a stallings, but where do you do, where do you start when you typically write a poem? In my case, I, start just by writing down images and phrases and words and the kernel of an idea, but don't really worry about what the heck the poem is or what it should look like. And then I figure that out afterwards. Mm. Completely the opposite I, from what it sounds like A. Stallings says. What's your approach to finding the poem? I think I'm more, a little bit more in your camp. I think that um, there's a period of reading. So sitting, just sitting down and starting to write cold it has never worked. I think I have to get into that space almost lure myself into that um it's almost like an incantation or something reading other poems feels very much spell like you know okay now i'm 
I'm spelling myself into, into this space. And it does take a couple of attempts of first lines. Overcoming that inertia is always very difficult. And then once you have those first couple of lines, um, you might get rid of them. I'm sure you've had this feeling that there's a warm up that happens. Um, and, but then you get into the, the world of the poem and you're wandering around a little bit and just saying what's under this rock and what's behind this door and you know, what kind of creature are you? And um, sort of figuring out who's in this space. And, and, it, and it tends to flow that way. And then you have to leave the space. I'm always a little bit relieved actually when, I'm, when I finish a poem or I actually run out of steam, to be honest. I, I have not written very long poems because I'm, I might still be a little afraid of being in this mental place um you know i'm like am i gonna get stuck here <laughs> like is, is the portal gonna close i better i better rush out before i'm here forever so um there there are those images that come in because i'm wandering around that that world that atmosphere so it does seem like um we're more similar in that way sort of picking up just just the the objects that are that are around so yeah oh, very cool uh, lives of new saints with lines such as, I do not complain of my injuries. I would take more. Give me the spear. Give me the mace, the axe, the broadsword, the Catherine wheel spinning in a lake of fire. So above mortal pain am I. Is an example, I think, of the diverse influences in the book. Pure invention, myths, mythology, your experiences all mixed together. Uh, how do you approach finding sources of inspiration? And you mentioned that you, you know, reading before, you don't just go into a poem completely cold there's some sort of starting point so what are your starting points yes i always have a couple of books of poems and and or criticism and even history next to me so they're almost they're almost like talismans or something i have to have them in in the space in order to to be like all right this is this is poem time and often i'll maybe hear a a story that someone tells that reminds me of a Greek myth or something. Um, I mean, I was an English literature major, so all these things are swirling around. You can never escape them. They, you make connections in your mind, um, no matter who's telling what story, because they're all the same stories. There's nothing really new. So you're gonna make those those references and, and inferences. Um, and and sometimes what's fun is using, using Wikipedia, actually, to go into a, a myth and see, you know, I know maybe one version of it or something, or, or, or an incomplete version, and seeing how many different versions there are and going down a little bit of a rabbit hole to say, okay, let me click on this name or this creature or this city and get into the history of that. And, and that is another way to inhabit a, a mental, emotional, historical space and say, ooh, this is, this is cool. Maybe I wanna walk around Atlantis for a little while. Like this, this, this is neat. Um, and to, to start to understand how people throughout, you know, the, I was going to say space and time, and it really is throughout space and time, have approached be, sort of human behavior and um, patterns and solidified them into these stories. And so the story itself is interesting and the way that it has been retold and revised and um, conceptualized in different at different times in history. So, so those, those are all swirling around. And sometimes I, I really don't know where to go in a, in a poem so, um, or how to start one. So maybe I'll take a line 
from someone else's poem and use that as a first line, just as a launch pad, right? To say, okay, let me, let me use, use you a little bit as some scaffolding to start to build. And then generally I can either get rid of it or use it and say, you know, this line comes from this person that that is perfectly legitimate, which I love. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of feels like hunting and gathering also in a, mm -hmm. in a funny way. Right. <laughs> it's, it's figuring out what, what to put in and leave out. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really exploring. It feels very physical in a way. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, it feels like exploring an actual landscape. Very cool. So mm -hmm. do you have building on this a little bit? Uh, do you have a writing routine? Is there a, a favorite place or time to write or a technique for getting into flow, which is that once doesn't happen every day for me. I wish it did. Boy, I'd be so productive. <laughs> that dreamy state where things are just cooking. Yes. Oh, goodness. I think it, it does. Those those rituals of reading first do help very much help with that. I know people who have, you know, they light candles or they, um, you know, put on a certain certain music or something like that. I've, I think I've tried almost everything to get into that flow. And I think I've given up on any routine other than that because life is so unpredictable and I'm, you know, working all day and on Zoom all day and thinking about business all day and then being able to come back to myself in a way, to my real self and write a poem feels like a relief. Um, at the end of the day, probably, I think I'm too involved in work at the beginning of the day and, you know, starting your Zoom meetings at 8 a.m. and, you know, got to get into the that mode. Um, but I also will say it's it's really funny. I actually, I went to business school and I had never written more than when I was in business school. Mm -hmm. So I was in English literature graduate school and poetry graduate school and you're in it all day and then there's no relief from it. But having been in, in you know, statistics class all day, you come home and you're like, oh my God, like I can't, that's enough of that brain. Like, let me go nurture this other brain. So that almost became a ritual to be like, all right, I know that if I just get through this decision science class, then I can go home and write a poem. And like, almost that was, was the, um, the impetus or, or creating momentum for the creativity. Cause it was so quashed during the day that <laughs> I came back and I was like, oh, thank God, this is not an Excel spreadsheet. Like, let me write some some verse, like the 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 antithesis of all the things that I've been doing during the day. So that helped. <laughs> that definitely uh, it's helped. definitely such a yeah. I feel the same thing in my tech industry job during the day. Uh, that it's just such a nice pivot uh, to take your brain in this totally unrelated place. So I love it. Yes. Yeah. So feedback or critique are critical to the poetic process. What have you learned both as a poet receiving feedback and when you're an instructor, an instructor giving feedback that can help listeners be better receivers and and givers of feedback? They're both critical skills. And how do you approach the critical revision and editing process in your own work? I have had, I've been so fortunate to have recently wonderful readers and editors and people who know and I, I think and hope like me and want me to um, to succeed artistically in a way that they are now um, feel feel they have a real place in. So one of my first readers is that is actually my sister who is again a visual artist and she is one of the the most incredible thinkers and, and aesthetic understanders of, of art that I have ever met and um, she will tell me when something's not working and when she loves something. I, I trust very much when she says this is good. I know it's good. And when she says this is not working, I 
100% believe her and I will work to make it work in the way that she begins to see it working. So finding those people, it takes a long time. I mean, I, you know, I went to Iowa uh, when I was 22 to 24 and that was much, much, much too young to, it, for me, for me, un, unformed and, and insecure in a way about my own work and to have that kind of critique. Um, I had wonderful um, classmates who understood my work and then, you know, some, some people never will. And that's fine. I mean, that's, 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 the, that's a market. I mean, that's what makes a market. Right. So um, it's very hard when one is young, I think, to discern between all of your critics, who is, who understands what you're trying to do and wants to preserve your voice while helping you evolve into even embody your voice more. And then who, you know, really is just, it's not their style or, um, or there's some kind of resistance to it, which, which you can listen to and sit with for a little while and see if there's a nugget that resonates with you and you can work toward experimenting with that kind of feedback, or you just say, you know what, like, thank you. No, thank you. I mean, there's, there's you, you, it's a market for you too. You get to choose, you know, what things work for you and what things don't and finding your people, your readers, it's, it is one of the most validating, beautiful experiences when you have that exchange and then passing that on to say, you know, maybe I've been working with someone um, as an editor on their first forays, you know, into poetry. And it has been so rewarding to watch them experiment with my feedback, take, take some and leave some, which is exactly what I encourage them to do. I'm not, I mean, I'm not God, <laughs> like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have all the answers. Um, I have my, my experience and perspective. And if, you know, if something resonates with this person, beautiful, I'd love to see what comes out of it. And if it, if it resonates and still doesn't work, great, drop it then. Like, you know, it's, it just detaching, I think, from any of those comments is a healthy thing, not only for poetry, but generally for life. <laughs> I mean, just detachment is, is the key generally. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's great advice and a great point that uh, not all feedback is, is something that you will take action to, but it's useful to listen to all feedback. But you have to, you know, there's a skill of discerning which feedback you should do mm -hmm. something with. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Well, now I'm going to hand the mic over to you to recite selections from Birthday of the Dead. I go wandering inside my head, alone, at the gate of my head, a bull the color of hot tar on yellowing paper. He ignores me, chews the perpetual grass. Beyond the gate is escape like the moon. It is not a known moon, nor of poetry. It is a red moon and subtle, and I walk backwards to see where I have been. The gravity here is the weight of an apple on the highest branch. When I try to catch the apple as it falls, I am inadequate as a pebble-hued moth. Slim as a coin, the moth makes holes so great, whole empires fall through them over and over. Let me return to the civilization whose god is a sunfish, flat as a palm. There, are, there my hands are nonsense. I just wave them around, astonished by their disobedience. They draw only the bull, its face the face of a heart that has seen itself and walked through its halls all the same. A hunger. It was a deer leg in a tree, bent like an architect's compass, hinged to meet the forked branch, also thin, also leafless, 
still in early spring. Hoof up, looking nothing so much as a goose head, a graceful upward angle, which meant something had gone horribly wrong in the knee. And it had, gnawed at the joint, ball and socket, naked and dry, though shin and foot were still furred, looked warm. Someone had found it, of course, or torn it away from the dogs, that mass of practical fury, and then hung or hanged or draped or set it like a gear into the tree, as if the world were made of nothing but hunger. Imagine the rest of the body deep in the woods already swarmed in its second heaving life. Drosophila melanogaster. Drawn to the sparkling clarity of Heinz's apple cider vinegar, three fruit flies have given their lives in my house for their love of ripe death. Three, let us say it, emissaries of light, tiny zooming angels sent by life itself to shepherd this banana into its afterlife. And once in the Vatican, I, like an ant, thought about my wobbly insignificant things, about the Pope at night pressing Athena's cold cheek, or lying on his back in the map room adrift on approximate seas, or lifting a rusted breastplate from its subtle hooks and clasping it, flaking, to his own breast. Outside, the sun does its hot, starry thing, and the wind rests water from a cloud and drops it on the earth. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I want to start with the hunger. Uh, it's an example of how, at least for me, your poetry is unsettling in a way that is reminiscent of how J.G. Ballard's stories unsettle. Uh, what writers, prose or poetry, are your influences? What emotions are you hoping to trigger in readers and listeners? And if you're not hoping to emote something, then what do you find in your the feedback you get from readers and listeners of your poetry? Mm. So start with influences. I, I think when I was young, I mean, still, you know, you never, I don't think you ever really drop an influence, but um, the Wallace Stevenses of the world, um, I think Dean Young, I, I loved um, before I went to Iowa. Um, Bridget Pegeen Kelly, uh, loved, you know, Mary Rufel in, in her sort of odd oddities. Um, I think I, I really appreciate those sort of swerves. Um, and and I think I, I like to feel myself having written the poem the way those poems make me feel so those i want to um create the same feelings for myself i think and then if people i think some people who have read my poems um have reflected back to me that a lot of those describe to me the same feelings that i have so that to me at least feels like a reflection that i'm i've succeeded and um in evoking the kinds of feelings that I like to feel reading poems. So it's it's this sort of circular feedback loop, I think, that that tends to happen with my my own reading, the creating of poems, someone else reading, and then um, validating, I think, my own reading feelings, if that makes any sense whatsoever. I'll draw a diagram. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm intrigued about how you find the surreal and the banal. A terrific example is Josephila Melanogaster. The title is a cool choice. I had to look it up to discover that the phrase is a genus of common fruit flies. And that sets the mm -hmm. tone for your poem, which takes the banality of a common fruit fly perishing in Heinz apple cider vinegar and turns it into something more. Tell me about your process of discovering these wonderful surreal images and themes and then connecting them back to something more. So in the case of the fruit flies, 
I, I know they come from somewhere. I know there is a, a genesis of them somewhere in some little tiny egg that you can't see, but they feel like they come out of nowhere, right? They feel like they just self-generate, right? They just appear um, the way I imagine, you know, in the, in the Bible or something like an angel appears. Like they, 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 was there, are there angel babies? Like, you know, no, they just are, are, they just are. And so that's, you know, in a funny way, this really um, very, very small, very common bug um, appears. And again, is, is part of that entropy that I'm really interested in. And several summers ago, I went to the Vatican Museum for the first time. And it is astonishing to think that to, to imagine the Pope or something walking through, you know, after hours and just saying, you know, I, I'm the steward of all of these objects and the continue, you know, a part of a continuum for better or for worse, right, of a certain kind of culture. And what does it mean for him in his own experience of his own entropy, right? Like he's, he's not immortal. Um, and, but looking around at these immortal symbols and, um, and yet, right, even those statues will crumble someday. So it's, it's feeling into the theme of, um, of that kind of decay that this fruit fly in my house in New Hampshire, right, where I have this rotting banana, has some some connection somewhere to you know the Pope in the Vatican. <laughs> like it was just it was kind of a thought experiment and a bit of a um, an internal joke in a way that seemed like a good subject for a poem. Cool. Uh, well, your poetry is so visually rich and imaginative, cinematic. Uh, do you think of your poems in some ways as micro short films? Maybe you've never thought of them that way. I could see I go wandering inside my head, perfectly suited for animation. I had the opportunity last year to see my poem tethered, transformed into an animated short film, a reverse ekphrastic experience, if you will, and it was magical. Have you explored applying your poetic skills to film? Oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. Wow, okay, I have not, and now I want to. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. Um, my internet just went out a little bit, but um, yes, I, I love those short, surreal films um, and and even the, the longer films that are sort of art horror. If you know the film The Witch, um, that's one of my favorite. I don't even like horror films, but that particular film feels very much like um, a poem I'd like to write. So yes, if, if anyone out there is interested, I would love to collaborate. <laughs> That'd be incredible. <laughs> so finally, what are your plans for this year to support the Birthday of the Dead and other projects you have on the go? So working on some um, some more sort of marketing PR, whatever you want to call it, for Birthday of the Dead, doing some readings around, which is new to me. I have never really done that circuit before, so exploring that feeling. Um, and then working on another collection, just keep on keeping on. I think that leaning into a little bit more of the that surrealism even more is something that is, again, really fun. and and an escape from a lot of the daily things of life. Like I just moved, actually just moved to Brooklyn. So a lot of practicalities that we're dealing with, like working on, you know, the HVAC system and the security system and all those daily things that require, you know, other people and many calls and bureaucracy and logistics and, you know, phone calls and all of that. And then to be able to escape for a little while into a surrealist poem, again, feels like 
that uh, very soothing for the brain. So it's it is both a um, working on a new collection for the collection, and then also as sort of therapy. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of it's a, a good a good balancing energy. Wonderful. Well, Rachel, it's been a privilege discussing your poetry today on the Vila Swings Poetry Podcast. Thanks so much. I absolutely loved your book, Birthday of the Dead. I recommend folks go find it. It's fantastic. Oh, you are wonderful. Thank you for your brilliant questions and for reading the book. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the first responsibility of all interviews is actually read the book, (laughs) but that will last much of the time. That's not the case. Thank you very much. Oh, I love it. Well, marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.